Hello and welcome to an episode of Climactic, a production of Hear Media, a boutique audio agency and a currently one-man studio in Narm, Melbourne. Previously, this was the flagship podcast of a collective of climate-engaged podcasts. Now, though, Climactic brings to you semi-occasionally episodes of climate-engaged podcasts that we produce at Hear Media or that we're able to feature on the feed for you. Think of it then as a grab bag of climate-engaged audio for your listening pleasure. What you're listening to today is an episode of a show called Under One Blue Roof, which is the work of an environmental master's student at the University of Melbourne named Marushka. I had the pleasure of meeting Marushka when I was teaching a workshop for the Waddle Fellowship, which is an environmental leadership program at the University of Melbourne. It collects students from across faculties who could be studying anything within the university at undergrad or postgrad level and puts them through an intensive multi-month process of learning not just more about climate change and environmentalism, but teaches them skills and how to be a leader in this space. This fellowship program is over and above their studies and results in an action project, which means they come up with plan and then execute a program and deliver it to the community. What I taught them about in that workshop was about how they might be able to use podcasting to reach an audience they might not otherwise reach, but more importantly, to spend time with the people that they would otherwise possibly not get to speak to. And it turns out, in the case of Marushka, that I was preaching to the choir. She'd already decided on doing a podcast as her action project as part of the fellowship, which was going to combine her environmental master's studies, her job at Homes for Homes, a social enterprise here in Narm, Melbourne, that funds social housing projects, and she was going to speak to the intersection of climate change and homelessness at a systemic level. So I was really thrilled when, after that workshop, Marushka reached out to me, and we started working together on this project. And in honesty, I didn't have to do much. She had her guests picked out, she knew how she was going to approach them, she knew what style of show she wanted to make. But it was a thrill to get her up to speed with some gear, give her some pointers based on my previous mistakes and learnings, and then get to edit and produce these interviews she'd done. What you're about to hear is the first episode of this 12-part miniseries. This one's an interview with a young woman named Thea, who you're about to learn a lot more about in the course of this episode. You're going to hear all about the aftermath of the devastating flooding in 2022 in Australia and dive in with Marushka into a deeper look at the systemic issues facing where we build in Australia and how we recover from climate disasters. I'll now leave you to enjoy this episode of Under One Blue Roof and find a link in the show notes so you can get them all. Enjoy. This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge the traditional owners of this country and pay our respects to elders past and present. Welcome to Under One Blue Roof, your podcast exploring the problem of climate-driven homelessness. 
Here, we ponder some of the big questions about housing, social justice, planetary boundaries and more and listen to stories from experts in the field who explain just how it's all related. Let's get to know the human face of climate change. Hi, and thanks for joining us under One Blue Roof. I'm your host, Marushka Soldana, a Master of Environment student and social enterprise practitioner. Floods are a devastating reality of the climate crisis, and there is much to do in order for communities to be better supported to respond to them in future. I'm grateful to have Thea on the show today to share her experience of going home after the floods. Thea is a Juris Doctor student originally from the hills of Mullumbimby in regional New South Wales. She has an interest in strategic climate litigation and empowering young environmental activists to gain greater knowledge about their legal rights and capacity to influence the political process. Thea is currently a research assistant at Melbourne Climate Futures at the University of Melbourne. She is also the coordinator for Extinction Rebellion Vic Legal, where she assists in the legal representation for activists who are arrested for protesting political and social inaction on climate change. She's passionate about climate justice, particularly its intersection with feminism and decolonization. I love that. Thea, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. We first met at the inaugural Melbourne Climate Futures Summit, and you shared this really powerful story with everyone in the room about your recent experience in your hometown after the floods, which really stuck with me because of how strong this concept of home is but also how fragile it can be. And it really influences a person's identity when you think about it. It's ingrained in us from the moment we're born. What is your connection to place and to home? And how has this shaped your understanding of who you are today? Yeah, sure. Well, I grew up in different parts of northern New South Wales or within Byron Shire but principally grew up in Mullumbimby and that's where uh, my parents still live. It's a weird and wonderful place, a small pocket of the world that is very famous all around the world, but it has a lot of different layers to it, which I think most people aren't aware of, as is the case, I'm sure, with many popular tourist destinations. For me, the main parts that really informed my upbringing was the strong sense of community And that was put on show to great effect following the floods. In the last few years, I've had, I would say, a complex relationship with my hometown in the COVID years. There was a lot of anti-vax movements and have had difficult conversations with family and friends, even through my childhood growing up there. That was already a point of contention in the community and obviously was brought into great focus in the last few years. Um, so I was feeling, yeah, complex about where I came from and the kind of the, the type of community and also disappointed that that was the reputation that my hometown was getting both nationally and even internationally. And then along came these devastating floods and there was very limited help, but the community sprang into action and really rallied around each other because of its makeup of environmental activists, healers, various campaigners and so on. They're the ones who make up the bulk of the region and they're the ones who really inspired me to pursue an area um, of law like climate. They didn't necessarily encourage 
the law route, but having grown up to an eco-activist mother being brought to protest since before I could walk, that was a strong part of my makeup really in growing up and, and is the reason that I decided to go to law school to take the values that I learned there and apply it in a way that I wasn't able to do in the community. Yeah, those early years really formulate, I think, a lot of what our belief systems are and what we're passionate about. And certainly family as well as broader community shapes that and reinforces that throughout, you know, the years of life that we live. And it's really interesting to hear about the impact that Mullumbimby as your hometown has had on your life and your pathway and trajectory into law. And I want to talk about that, but you mentioned how devastating the floods were for the community and the Northern Rivers region was at the heart of a lot of what has happened over the last little while. And it continues to be a place that is impacted time and time again. Can you describe what it was like to go back home and start to make sense of what had happened? Yeah, so I wasn't there for the actual flood event itself. Um, It happened on the first day of the university semester last year. So I was in Melbourne at the time, in Nam, and from going back, of course, it's an outsider's perspective. So just want to preface that because the experiences that those who are actually on the ground have been incredibly traumatic and their stories have not been told enough, I think. So definitely can't speak for them. But having gone back a couple of months later, I think it was about a month and a half after it happened that I came back. I actually wanted to go back sooner, but having not been able to even speak to my mother for the first five days after the floods hit because they lost all communication and there was basically no internet for up to a month and even some places have still struggled to get reconnection a year later. So they didn't have any fresh water. They're running out of fresh water. They didn't have power and there was nowhere for me to stay. So while I wanted to go there, they were saying, look, if you come, it'll be another person we have to feed and house and give water to and we actually don't have the resources for that. So that was kind of how dire it was. It was like literally basic essentials were in incredibly short supply. So me returning, the floodwaters had receded by that point, but the impact of it was just etched on the community that was incredibly visible. Just there were a few moments that stood out for me. I think walking to my old house from where my mother was staying, I was walking along the street, a street that I'd walked down thousands of times growing up. Uh, And they're all the usual community faces that I would see, don't know their names, but I know their faces. And I remember seeing this one man uh, who lived near the soccer pitch, which was next to my house where I used to play soccer. And he was wearing mismatched clothing, no shoes, and he looked like he'd aged 10 years and could just tell he lost everything. His house was in ruins. And I think just seeing someone's face so visibly changed um, was a real sort of insight into what these people had gone through. And then, of course, actually seeing my home was another pretty surreal experience because the insurance companies had come through. It took them a few weeks to get to the house, but basically they came through and demolished it entirely, even though the water only went up so high. They took out the walls, they took out the bathroom, the kitchen, like everything except the roof and the outside walls. So I was standing in my house (laughs) 
looking around at it and from the waist down everything had been removed but there were still paintings on the walls from above sort of shoulder height so I was looking at my house and I could see it there and you not see it there at the same time so it was a profoundly weird and unsettling experience to see it both devastated and removed and yet see the ghost of what it once was very strange yeah that image is really confronting and I think thought-provoking because you don't expect to ever say goodbye to the home that you grew up in that never crosses your mind as something that you'll ever lose and yet that is the reality of so many people not just in New South Wales but nationally along the east coast so many communities have had that collective experience that you've just described and I think the magnitude of it I still come to grips with it. When we were at the Melbourne Climate Futures Summit, something that was spoken about is the way we talk about climate change and extreme weather events as these once in a hundred year things that happen that are, you know, every now and then. But I think we're getting to this point now where those words no longer serve the actual facts of what's happening. And Something that stood out to me that one of the speakers mentioned was that unprecedented shouldn't mean unprepared. And I just wanted to know what your thoughts were on that. That's a critical point, absolutely. And uh, it's only going to become worse and it's already becoming worse right now. These, These words mean very little. This region just experienced its fourth once in a hundred year flooding in the space of 10 years. So that's a snapshot of, of where we're at and just how far removed those words are from the reality of the situation. Various floods, including up in the Kimberley, have shown that we are incredibly unprepared for these kinds of disasters. There was a slightly faster response, although not very meaningful one, following the ones in New South Wales. I think partly the change in government was somewhat responsible for that, but also because of I hope some of the shaming that they suffered at the hands of people who were on the ground who were able to show how much of a sham some of the support, the official support was. For Malamimbi, basically they were, as I mentioned before, left completely at a loss. They had voluntary members of the state emergency services, but again, they're volunteers um, with you know varying degrees of training, but some of them don't have much and they certainly didn't have training to ever prepare them for the scenes that were unfolding before them including um, rescuing people and people who'd lost their lives from mudslides, pulling people onto boats in Lismore in the middle of the night, you know, things like that that were just completely, people had never been expecting to go through that. Some real heroes were uncovered in that and and many, many lives were saved by their fellow neighbours and community members and not by anyone in sort of official roles. The army arrived, I think it was three and a half weeks afterwards and then they were filmed um I think it was a line of about 10 of them and they basically were passing a sandbag down a human chain of 10 people back and forth while they had a professional cameraman set up a light reflecting umbrella and then that video was found on Scott Morrison's personal Instagram no other impact was visible from from them um, for some weeks after that. I think then there was a little bit of help, but it was very much too little too late. So by that point, the community had had to step up 
The community hall was turned into an action response centre. They had whiteboards with things that they needed. They had radios that were being passed around. Everyone's skills were being utilised in whatever way they could be. And this sort of militia unit was set up. But that just, I mean, it demonstrated the incredible resilience of that particular community, but it also highlighted how far we are from being ready for this and just how everything you can expect about being in Australia can be wiped away in the blink of an eye and suddenly we're in incredibly desperate situation, feeling million light years away from the sort of civilised <laughs> metro environments that we, we thought we identified with and that's just suddenly not the case. Things can be ripped away so quickly once something like that has happened and, you know, you don't have communications, you don't have the same access to places that you would usually, you know, gather. There's food, sanitation, water, as you mentioned, so many critical pieces of infrastructure that, you know, get damaged or get completely obliterated with something like the flood that Mullumbimby experienced. And that is really unfortunate and disappointing to hear and yet not surprising that the support that was required wasn't there. And I think that's something that is now post the floods, although we're still in this kind of cycle of these things just continuing to happen. There's a little bit of, you know, action that comes out of those types of situations where it's like, okay, this is the time to correct the processes or, you know, get the right resources and put everything in place so that next time this doesn't happen. And there will be a next time, which is really scary. But also you have to wonder how is it that that doesn't already exist and that that responsiveness isn't there and that the community has to step in and really do all of the work. You are, as we mentioned before, an advocate for climate justice, and that's what you're doing in, in your master's, the areas that you work in. And climate justice is an area of law that was really interesting to me in that it focuses on representation and inclusion and the protection of the rights of people who are probably the most vulnerable to the effects of climate change. And with so many systems of discrimination and disadvantage that seem to constantly be at work in our society and compound and intersect in these different ways, how do you think we can ensure that people who need it most can access legal advice? A complex and loaded question and one that I am continuing to ask and to learn myself. And I think that obviously there is no one simple answer, particularly from within the law. I mean, it's an incredibly both hypocritical and um, empowering space to be in. On the one hand, recognising that our legal systems are not only complicit in upholding these structures, but actually promote them and further entrench many of these systems which have led to the current crisis that we're in now. And yet I'm attempting to use that same system in order to pursue improved outcomes. So, of course, already you're starting from a very difficult point. This is, this is a learning experience that will um, be unfolding for many decades to come, I imagine. However, I do 
believe that the law is an incredibly important aspect of addressing this and that this is the sort of system that we're operating in. And I have experimented with sort of advocating for change, I would say more from with outside the system, for example, direct action protests and things like that, um, being parts of small community organisations, Extinction Rebellion and so on. And that plays an incredibly important role as well in terms of pushing forward societal perspectives and opinions and kind of driving that appetite for change. Um, I think that has played an incredibly important role and will continue to do so. Protest has a very proud history in this country and around the world. However, I'm also then beginning to explore the changes that can be made from within the system, including sort of corporate climate risk. And that's the area that I'm moving towards. How to address this idea of justice is again a loaded one because, of course, that means something different to everyone. To me, as you mentioned, it is a recognition of the fact that those who are most vulnerable to the impacts of climate change are the ones who've contributed least to it. And it is also touching on the recognition that in pursuing climate repair and halting worsened climate change, that we have a very important opportunity to not replicate the same systems of injustice that that have led to the current situation that we're in. For example, this can include, you know, renewable energy projects that at the same time displace First Nations people from their country and while on the face of it might be a sort of beneficial alternative to fossil fuels, end up perpetuating what some have called a sort of form of CO2 lonialism that is simply going to lead to further strife. This is an opportunity to not only tackle the climate crisis but recognise that it's a crisis that has been created by the dispossession of First Nations people through patriarchal systems, through capitalism and so on, and how can we learn to create a better system that doesn't replicate these same structures while also tackling and reversing global warming. No mean feat and one that we can't do alone. It requires people from all industries, all walks of life and all levels of experience. But in my own little way, that is what I am attempting to explore. <laughs> no small feat. That sounds like a really big task. And I like how you mentioned working outside the system and also working within it and being really conscious of that dichotomy. I wonder if you think that it's better to rip down the system and maybe start again or whether you know, it's it's about shifting mindsets and behaviours over time and, you know, incremental change that can get us to this next place that we need to be in. Both. Uh, the problem is that we've been pushing for incremental change for the last 40-odd years and have been saying we need to slowly phase out of fossil fuels and then decades later, okay, we need to, we really need to start phasing out of fossil fuels. And then another 10 years, we, okay, we need to get off, <laughs> we really need to get off fossil fuels. And now it's like, we need to get off fossil fuels now. And now the fossil fuel industry are like, hang on, we have to do it gradually. Yeah. I mean, that's the challenge, right? Of course, it, it can't happen overnight, but at the same time, we are in a climate and ecological emergency and rapid steps need to be taken. So that's where policy can come in and social change needs to continue. And that inherently is a slow process that requires consistent effort over a long period of time. And that's kind of, for me, what the idea of sustainability is in this instance. Another word that gets used and misused constantly and is a bit of a pet peeve and I've almost stopped using it for that reason. But 
So looking at environmental sustainability, there is this critical part that's like we need to sustain the movement, the momentum in order to get improved environmental change. And that has to include a level of personal sustainability to be able to maintain that over decades. And that, again, is kind of what I've grown up with is seeing a lot of these incredible activists who are incredibly burnt out. You know, it's a very difficult fight and they've had wins along the way, but, you know, it's been a long and slow process. And their hope is that my generation, our generation, will see more rapid change in this. But there are going to be some things we're going to have to keep fighting just like they did. Couldn't agree more. And you have talked a little bit about how protest has been a part of your life. And I wonder if there are any wins that perhaps you've either worked on or been a part of where there's been a moment where you said, yes, like, I feel like we're being listened to and things are going in the right direction. Uh, Yes, there have been. Um, There have been some exciting small ones from when I was a toddler trying to prevent the development of the big supermarket that was coming to a small town and I remember we all didn't go to school that day because we were all participating in this march and there were, you know, musical instruments, there were puppets, there were people climbing up trees to stop logging. And to me it was just like a big party. It was, you know, the community coming together. And so there have been many moments like that that have been very rewarding. Um, and even just, I mean, participating in some of the the climate marches here and then being involved in as a sort of witness to some of the exile movements and then you know changing government and I mean the election result that is a result of concerted effort over a long period of time and it just I think shows how much people are beginning to care about climate as an issue which has been ignored by the mainstream media but I think that that's one of the key reasons that we're seeing the kind of results that we're seeing so that's I mean a tangible example that a few years ago I just wouldn't believe possible. It's amazing how quickly and yet slowly things can change, but I think you're so right that any shift in the needle is the product of so many years and decades of hard work that has gone into making that happen. And I think we're at a time now where we're seeing this momentum build and that's really exciting and positive and we need more and we need it faster. But we'll get there, I think is the the belief. Now to wrap up, I wanted to talk about ecologically sustainable development and maybe how this ties in with your own vision for an equitable and sustainable climate future. And that's a really big question, I know, but I think with your work in law and in sustainability, you know, there's so many intersections with critical work that is happening in the space. How do you think the legal system in Australia might need to evolve in order to face into the urgency of the climate crisis? In many ways, but I think it needs to start with education. So, I mean, lawyers are in the main very highly educated group you're required to be. You know, there's certain academic qualifications that you need to have and so on. But the bulk of the industry is not young <laughs> and not particularly diverse. And they're the same sort of people that I guess have been instrumental in the other sort of pillars of society that have kind of been um, 
an important part of the resulting crisis that we have now in a way. So it's not surprising, therefore, that they're the people who are perhaps less inclined to radically change the system that they're in effect benefiting from. While they have you know, incredible expertise and experience in areas of law, there's not necessarily a pervasive understanding of the realities of climate change. And many people think that it's an area of law that is to be opted into as an area of interest. Um, you know, For example, those who practice environmental law, and that's the area that they specialize in. But people over here doing contract law, commercial, you know, international arbitration disputes um, and so on think that it doesn't apply to them. One important place to start is actually widespread education of the fact that this is in fact relevant to them. It's not an opt-in. It's compulsory to be aware of these issues in order to actually be doing our ethical duties correctly as a lawyer. So one of the projects that I've been involved with at MCF is creating a micro-certification through the University of Melbourne that will allow not just legal professionals, but those across industry aimed at sort of CEOs, boards of directors to come and actually get up to speed on these issues because not only lawyers, but uh, shareholders of big companies are now demanding that their boards be across these issues and take proactive steps to minimise their risk. But then the companies are in the difficult position of, well, how do we upskill? You know, and it's the same for the lawyers. They, they know their area of law, but how are they able to find the connections This is an idea that has been launched by various eminent lawyers in the field. So they released a a memorandum of opinion to the legal profession. This was um, the barristers, Noel Hutley SC and others, including Sarah Barker, who came up with this idea that uh, in order to fulfill the lawyer's ethical responsibility correctly, they need to be aware of climate issues. So everyone is a climate lawyer now, whether you like it or not, was one of the phrases that was used. For lawyers, for CEOs of companies, um, that is one concrete place to start is becoming aware of how this will affect you and your profession, regardless of whether you think it's relevant to the actual area that you're working in, but recognising that climate change will touch on every single area and we need to be aware of it. That is awesome. I feel like the more people who know about this stuff, particularly decision makers, particularly in business and industry, the better chance we have of enacting that change that we need to see at a really broad and big scale. So education is critical and I would love to just thank you for your time and your insights, Thea. Thea.